Welcome to Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at Oak Ridge, and we are so excited to have you join us today. So grab your Bible and then your iPad, a notebook, pens, pencils, whatever it is that will help you get the most out of today's sermon. And please enjoy our Sunday message. When I was thinking about what I was going to preach on this morning, I was really just thinking about, as Mike kind of already indicated, how special it is when Christmas is on a Sunday, because it happens so infrequently. And I knew it had felt like a long time since the last one, so I actually went online and looked it up, and the last time we had a Christmas on a Sunday was in 2016. Natasha and I were just three months married. We were living in Guelph, and we were waiting at home for a scheduled meeting, our last scheduled meeting and interview with the elders of Oak Ridge to decide if they were going to offer me a job here or not the last time there was a Sunday Christmas. Well, that warm, fuzzy feeling of nostalgia was quickly replaced by terror when I kept reading on the same website and found out that the next time we have a Christmas on a Sunday, Natasha and I will have a teenager in the house because the next one's not for 11 years, which is strange because of the leap years and stuff. There's no denying that these Christmas Sundays are special, and in some ways that can make it feel a little bit like a lot of pressure. And I know it's not uncommon for preachers to struggle with a real or um, self-imposed expectation when it comes to the Advent season to preach something new or preach something unique or refreshing so it's not just rehashing the same Christmas story we've all heard a hundred times. And yet, as I reflected on the significance of a Sunday morning Christmas service, and as I thought about that same old Christmas story, It really seemed like there was no other choice that was fitting for a day like today than to return to the heart of it all in Luke chapter 2. So if you have a Bible with you, I'll invite you to turn there with me this morning. Many of you will know that our Treehouse and Rooted, which is our kids' um, midweek program, started back up this fall for the first time since spring of 2020. And one of the things that we always do in Rooted on the last session before the holiday break is we do a Christmas quiz. There's a bunch of questions about the Christmas story and every kid is given a Bible and they work in groups to look up the passages and answer the questions. But what's always funny to me is to watch that first few minutes when some of the kids look at the quiz and just fly right through it without even touching their Bibles because they assume that they know the answers to these stories. They've heard the Christmas story. They know the answers. Unfortunately, many of these same people get a bunch of the answers wrong. And that's because oftentimes the songs that we sing, the carols, the dramatic retellings of the Christmas story that we see While they're helpful for getting the narrative across, they don't always get the details 100% accurate to the biblical story. A classic example is a question on the quiz that asks, where did the Magi meet Jesus? Our minds immediately go to the manger scene, right? The gifts, the camels side by side with the sheep, shepherds and wise men and baby Jesus, oh my. And yet the verse in Matthew 2 tells us they saw the child with his mother Mary in a house where they delivered their treasures. It tells us that Herod was concerned about babies as old as two years based on the time that they saw the star. We also read that Joseph takes the whole family to Egypt right after the Magi leave based on a warning from an angel. 
But Luke's version tells us that Jesus was given the name Jesus and circumcised on the eighth day after his birth, and then that he was taken to Jerusalem to make the appointed sacrifices for the firstborn child, giving us the impression that the Magi's arrival happened after these events. This got me thinking about the idea of collective false memories, what some refer to as the Mandela effect, where for some reason or another, our minds fill in details about an event that aren't entirely accurate, and yet we remember that new information as truth. Let me give a couple of examples. Think of that famous line, the most famous line from The Empire Strikes Back. Star Wars, the second one that came out long before I was born, long, long before I was born, a long, long time ago. I can't believe I missed that one. Some of you may have saw it in theaters, but that gripping moment when Luke Skywalker finally comes face to face with Darth Vader, Darth Vader says, Luke, I am your father. Actually, that's wrong. That's what we think it is. He doesn't. He says, no, Luke, I am your father. That's not right either. The line is just, no, I am your father. And yet we all remember it, or many of us who have heard that cultural reference before hear, Luke, I am your father, because it adds that extra weight of emphasis. But that is not what the quote actually is. Take it back to the Christmas story. We all know there was three wise men, right? Three magi? Well, wrong again. There, there was no actual quote that says there was three wise men in the Bible. We see that there was three gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, as we just sang about. It doesn't actually tell us how many magi, just that there was magi from the east that came and brought gifts for the Savior. The reality is that there is a lot that we remember or think that we know and remember about the Christmas story, but even after hearing it over a hundred times, we can still mess up the details. We like to imagine the drama we like to think about what that night would have looked like for Mary and Joseph. We want the birth story. Give us all the nitty-gritty, the, nitty the details, what was happening on that night. But the biblical account doesn't actually give us that many details about the birth itself. In Matthew's gospel, it just says, she gave birth to a son, and he, that is Joseph, named him Jesus. And while Luke gives us a few more details, you might be surprised when we read this morning how little he actually says. And so sometimes we end up filling in those blanks with information that isn't actually there. So this morning, we're going to try something, and we're going to do the exact opposite, and we're going to focus on what is actually written in the text. And this is not to shame our songs or our carols or to shame our Christmas play, because again, these are great tools for us to remember and to celebrate. But on Christmas Day, on the Lord's Day, I want to be sure that we are reading what God's Word actually says about the birth of His Son. So this morning we're going to break it up into three sections or scenes, and I know many of you heard these words last night at our Christmas Eve service. And as we read this morning, let's do our best to not fill in the blanks, but actually to appreciate that Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, included the details that he did for a reason, and left out others for a reason as well, even those juicy, dramatic ones that we want. So let's start in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Scene 1, to Bethlehem. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. 
and all the people were on their way to register for the census, each to his own city. Now Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was betrothed to him, and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. This passage brings a lot of memories, because this was often the reading that I was assigned as a child at our Christmas Eve candlelight service back home. I remember years and years of practicing it over and over, trying to say the name Corinius, right? It's the hardest word in any of the readings, and I apologize to our brother Bruce, who we gave that reading to last night, last minute, because it is a, the hardest word in all the readings, and I still get it wrong sometimes. But nostalgia and familiarity aside, what do these first few verses actually tell us, and why might Luke have included them? Well, first we see that a command comes from the emperor to take a census of his empire while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. This starts out the theme of God using the seemingly normal plans and purposes and situations of humans to accomplish his divine purposes. See, Caesar had no idea that by commanding this census, he would be moving the birth mother of the Messiah to the place where prophetically he needed to be born. But God knew. It also, in typical Lucan fashion, focusing on details, roots the birth of Jesus at a very specific time and place in history, thus making it harder to deny and easier to confirm. We know this instinctually. If someone tells you something that sounds far-fetched and can't offer many details and sounds pretty wishy-washy, it's harder to believe. But if they tell you something, as unbelievable as it might sound, and fill in details like the time and the place, people who were there, witnesses who saw it as well, facts that you can easily go and verify yourself, it seems a little bit more believable. Next we see that people made their way back to their hometown to register for this census. Joseph was from the family of David, which is emphasized a few times here, so he went to Bethlehem, which was the city of David. Pregnant Mary came along with him. That is what Luke tells us. Now here is where some speculation sometimes likes to come in. And we start to fill in some details from our Christmas story retellings. Sometimes people theorize and ask the question of why did Mary go with Joseph at this time, considering they were still betrothed or engaged and not actually married yet. Wouldn't she have to stay in Nazareth with her family and register there? Especially if she knew the baby was coming soon, wouldn't she want to be around her family? So maybe some say this indicates that Mary and Joseph knew that the Messiah needed to be born in Bethlehem, and that's why they went together. Others say because betrothal at the time was basically married, she had to go with Joseph because she was part of his family. However, notice what Luke does not tell us. He does not tell us why Mary went. It could be any or none of those reasons. Clearly, that detail is not important to Luke's telling of the story. What is important to him is that Mary went with Joseph to Bethlehem because Joseph was of the line of David. Now, maybe you don't care so much about the motivation. You've never thought before about why Mary went with Joseph. You don't care about that stuff. 
But this is also a great place to start the drama, right? We start to think about how long does it take to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem? Can you imagine riding on a donkey that far, let alone pregnant, three trimesters in? Well, Luke doesn't actually tell us she was riding on a donkey. We include that detail ourselves. She might have, or she may have walked. It doesn't matter to Luke's story. And actually, Luke doesn't even technically tell us how far along Mary is at this point. We usually like to picture Mary riding up to the city, baby basically bursting out of her as they knock on all the doors to try and find a place to deliver the baby that's clean and safe. But all Luke says is, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. He doesn't say how long they were in Bethlehem when this time came. It could have been days, weeks, months for all we know. Because again, that wasn't important to his telling of the story. What's important is just that it happened while they were there. Verse 7, what happened? Verse 6, sorry. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them at the inn. How many hours in labor? No idea. Was it a smooth delivery? We don't know. Did Joseph pass out, or did he cut the cord? Did she have a midwife or a relative there to help her? How long did they do skin to skin after the baby was born? Did he nurse right away? Your guess is as good as mine. The little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes? That one's not very believable. But again, Luke doesn't tell us for sure. What we do know for sure, he was born, wrapped in cloths, and laid in a manger because there was no room for them at the inn. Now, this is another sticking point where people like to fill in details and sometimes even draw conclusions. I've heard sermons preached based on conclusions drawn from this detail. Has anyone here ever heard that Jesus was born in a cave? Anyone heard that before? I know a few people have heard that before. This is very common in historical Christian tradition. The idea goes that if he was laid in a manger, that means he must have been born in a stable, right? The songs say it too. Luke doesn't say it was a stable, just a manger. If he, must, if he was in a manger, he must have been in a stable, and at those places and times, the stables would have been likely in a cave because it was sheltered from the wind and the weather surrounding uh, Bethlehem. They wanted to protect their animals. The implication is then sometimes drawn from this that the picture of Jesus' birth shows that he was alone and rejected from the beginning. He was born in filth and squalor and... That was the exact opposite to how a king should be treated. That sounds reasonable. That could very well be the case. On the flip side, if you pick up some other commentaries, I've seen historians and theologians argue the exact opposite, saying that in those days it was common for a Palestinian home to have a sort of communal living space on the lower level of the house. Their bedrooms would be upstairs, and downstairs was a communal living space that often had mangers or feeding troughs in the winter in case some of the animals needed to be brought in to protect them from the weather. These people also say that Bethlehem was too small to have any formal inns, the way that we think of them. And they say that the word that Luke uses there could refer to guest rooms or even a guest house. So since Joseph was from the line of David, they must have just been at the home of a relative. His family was there. They were in his house, in their house, in the lower level, the communal area. And Jesus being laid in the manger isn't about rejection, they say. It shows he was born amongst family in a humble home. Still not what you expect for a king, but not in a cold, dark cave either. What we're talking about here is studying the historical context. 
You've heard us say that context is incredibly important when we read and study the Bible. And that is obviously absolutely true. But when our research into history and context takes us so far that we focus on details that aren't even there, where we make the text say things that it doesn't actually say, we have a bit of a problem. What is important to Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writing the very words of God, is that we know that Jesus was born, wrapped in cloth, and laid in a manger because there was no room at the inn. This is another example of God using a seemingly normal and mundane situation to accomplish something specific, even if that something was a birth story just strange enough to give the shepherds a unique detail to look for in the coming verses. And at this point, we'll now transition to them, the next scene, the fields and the flocks. Let's read Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock at night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood near them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And so the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby, same details, wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, we can debate the societal perceptions of shepherds in Jewish culture in the first century and whether or not they were despised or appreciated because different people will say different things. We can theorize as to why God chose them or we can simply say, wow, what a strange and unexpected audience to be the first ones to be told about the birth of Jesus. An incredible detail. Understandably, we see in these verses that like Zechariah, like Mary, like Joseph himself, the presence of an angel suddenly showing up is frightening to these shepherds. But also, as in chapter 1, the angel tells them to not be afraid. With Zechariah, it was, do not be afraid, for your prayer has been heard. With Mary, it was, do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. And here it is, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. It has that extra word in there. I remember taking intro Greek in seminary, and we had this delightful older woman with a lot of energy teaching us Greek. And one of the few things I remember from that class is that in Greek, the work for behold is idu. And she would always say it just like that. And idu, idu, behold. Because it adds that emphasis. It adds gravitas. It adds something a little bit different. For behold, idu. A savior has been born. Do not be afraid. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. The verb used here for bring good news is where we get our English word for evangelize. We know that gospel just means good news, and the word in Greek, again, lends itself to this idea of evangelism, of sharing good news, bringing it to someone else. And in a moment, we will see that this particular good news that the angels share with the shepherds will be spreading. It's going to start a chain reaction of responses. But let's look at what the angels actually say, because it's important in understanding and appreciating these good news responses. First, it is good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. 
What is that news? Well, in the city of David, notice again the repetition here, drawing focus to Jesus' Davidic ancestry and his messianic qualifications. There has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There's no mystery here. The angel tells them clearly and directly, the Messiah, the one your people have been waiting on for generations and generations, has been born. It's a bold claim, even for an angel. But notice how the angel backs it up. This will be a sign for you. That language might sound familiar. It's borderline prophetic. It's incredibly similar to the phrase in the prophecy that was given to Ahaz that we looked at back in Isaiah just a couple weeks ago, where he said, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and she will name him Emmanuel. It's sort of like the angel is saying, you can go look for yourself. Here is how you can confirm that what I'm telling you right now is true. Here is how you can know that what you're getting is legitimate information. And then they give a detail about the birth that is just strange, unique, and yet specific enough that it's out of the norm and independently verifiable. Somewhere in the city of David in Bethlehem, there is a baby lying in the feeding trough of an animal. There's a common trope in works of fiction where a character if they're suspicious that the information they're receiving is from a specific person, they ask for a fact or a quote that only that person would know. That's not so different than what's happening here. It's like the angel is anticipating disbelief. And so it offers verification right from the start. Notice the angel doesn't tell them they have to go. It just tells them that that confirmation is out there waiting for them if they so choose. So, we have good news. The Messiah has been born. And we have an angel sharing that good news with a group of shepherds nearby. But before we can see how they and other humans respond to the good news, we have another group entering in the third scene, the responses. Luke 2, 13 to 15. And suddenly, there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly army of angels praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among people with whom he is pleased. And when the angels had departed from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So we start off with more angels, a multitude of angels in fact. It's like it's saying you thought one was scary. How about a literal army of angels? And what is their response to this good news? The angels are worshiping and glorifying God and acknowledging the way that this good news is going to impact the peoples of earth, pointing to the Messiah's eventual purpose. Now it's time for the shepherds to respond. The angels leave, and what do they say? Let's go now and see. And I love the phrasing of this verse. Let's go straight to Bethlehem immediately. No delays, no packing up. Let us just go. Let us go straight to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. Notably, it's not, let's go see if 
this thing has happened, but let us go see this thing that has happened. There is already belief in there, which the Lord has made known to us. Not the thing that the angel told us, but what the Lord himself has made known to us. We know something from God. Let's immediately go and see it with our eyes. It doesn't even have the the suggestion that they're trying to confirm it as much as they just want to go and see this incredible thing that they have been told about. Verse 16, And they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. We don't know how they found them, if they asked around town or how they were guided. Notably, there's no star at this point. They found their way to Mary and Joseph. When they had seen him, they made known the statement which they had been told them about this child. They went in a hurry. They found what the angel had described, and then they made known that which was made known to them. They share the same good news that the angel told them as fact, now confirmed with their own eyes, based on what the angel had described to them. So the news from the angel is spreading. How do the next hearers respond? Well, first, there's other people around. Verse 18, and all who heard it were amazed about the things which were told to them by the shepherds. You ask the question, who is there? Joseph, probably, his family, maybe Mary's midwife, some random nosy people who heard that a baby was born and laying in a manger. Maybe. Luke doesn't tell us. Just that whoever was there and heard this good news from the shepherds were amazed. And what other word would you use? Who would not be amazed? A group of strangers shows up at the door of the place that you were staying and says, an angel told us there's a baby in a manger somewhere in this town. Is that you? Oh, by the way, the angel told us this baby is the Messiah, the promised coming Savior King that our entire people group has been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. That baby in there is the King. What other word would you use to describe that but amazing? Amazing news. We see that Mary has a response as well in verse 19. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The word that Luke uses for pondering is literally the idea of throwing together or bringing together. And I like what one commentator said. They described it like Mary taking what she's heard and seen and putting all the pieces together like a mental jigsaw puzzle. From the angel that came and saw her, to her interaction with Elizabeth, to this unique maternity ward, to the group of random shepherds coming to share their own angelic revelation, the pieces are all fitting together, and Mary treasures that knowledge. She treasures it. And finally, we see the shepherds continue their response. Having seen with their eyes, they now celebrate with their mouths in verse 20. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told to them. For all that they had heard, for all that they had seen, just as had been told to them. So, praise God for what we heard tonight. An angel showed up to us, praise God for what they had to say. 
praise God for what we saw. We went and saw that what they said is true. Praise God for that. And praise God that it was all exactly as the angel told us. And isn't that the exact response you would expect for such great news? You hear it, and you celebrate. It's the same way we react to great news. You hear it, and you celebrate. You see it, and you celebrate some more. And when you realize that what you've heard and what you've seen confirm that it's all true, you celebrate some more, telling anyone who will listen what you've seen and heard so that they can celebrate along with you. That's exactly what Luke describes in this chapter of Scripture. Do we have questions about the details and the drama that our humanness wants answers to that we might not get until we get to glory one day? Sure, absolutely. But as one pastor and theologian wrote, the Lord didn't direct Luke's pen to satisfy our curiosity. Instead, he wrote exactly what was required to tell us about some incredible news, news that shepherds heard and saw and shared and celebrated by praising God for his faithfulness. As we come towards the end of our time together and approach the table of the Lord, communion, I want us to take a moment and acknowledge that we've not only heard this great news of Jesus' birth that is worth sharing and praising God for, but as New Testament believers, 2,000 years later, we have heard even better news. We have news that not only did the Messiah come to earth as a baby for his people, But he grew up, he lived a perfect life, and eventually died a sacrificial death and was resurrected on the third day to pay the cost of the sins of the entire world. That is, reconciliation between a holy, perfect God and sinful humanity, so that by believing in him, we can spend eternity with him. The news that Jesus came is great, but the news that he died and resurrected and paid the cost of our sins so that by believing in him we can spend eternity with him is even better. The best of all. Now it might seem strange to celebrate Christ's death on the day that we celebrate his birth, but that is why he came to earth. To save his people from their sins, as Matthew's gospel says. And just as his people waited and waited and waited for him to come the first time, so too we wait for him to return, just as he promised, so that our faith can be made sight like the shepherds. So we can worship for eternity what we have heard and we have seen, just as has been told to us. And when we take communion, part of what we're doing is declaring that Christ's death was sufficient to accomplish what he came to accomplish. Peace on earth. That the war is already won, that we do not wait in vain, but we wait to see that which has been told to us, that which has been made known to us by the Lord. So today, in just a moment, we are going to eat, and we are going to drink, and we're going to remember, we're going to celebrate, and we're going to anticipate. Let me pray, and then we will take the elements together. Thank you so much for joining us today. For more sermons, blogs, and other resources, you can check out our website, oakridgebiblechapel.org. To listen to our weekly podcast, Word Processing, you can go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any other podcasting platform. Remember, you can always join us in person or on our live stream at 10.30 a.m. on Sundays. Thanks for watching.